And here's one from Ilsa. Aha, okay, we got two, two juicy ones. Very interesting one from Ilsa. Very interesting. I, mean, I, I don't quite recall hearing it phrased this way, but of course we have a philosopher here, so expect unusual phrasing. <coughs> this is from Ilsa. Could you please explain the relationship between identityless, identityless, or non-self, or identitylessness, so non-self, and personhood? Because after all, this room right now, is, by my latest count, is something like 39 people. So that's 39 persons. And there's no, school of, there's no school of Buddhism that says, no, you said 39 people? I'm sorry, there are no people here. There's no, no school of Buddhism that says that. There are no people here. Why? Because there's not self, and a self is a person. And so therefore, 39 non-selves, which means 39 non-people. Nobody in Buddhism is that foolish that I've heard of, but I could, I, you know, I still have some years to go, hopefully. And so clearly we are persons. That's not ever, ever contested. We are persons, we are individuals. We're people, we're human beings. On the one hand, on the other hand, this strong theme of identity-less, or non-self. All this, yeah, so, yeah, so there's, there's two parts. This is very interesting. So let's just pause right there. As I was reminded at a conference I helped organize at Oxford just a couple of months ago, if we go back to the Pali Canon, these foundational teachings of the Buddha, this term anatta, anatta or anatman, non-self, non-self, crops up a great deal. Nowhere does the Buddha say there is no such thing as a self, that people don't exist, that you don't exist. But the word non-self comes up a lot. And how it comes up is, as you're attending to everything that you identify with, now, bear in mind that could be pretty large. If extraterrestrials suddenly landed on our planet, you know, in, uh, how do we say, in Central Park, New York City, <sighs> close encounter of the, what, third kind? Everybody sees it, get it on CNN, NBC rushes over, ABC rushes over, okay, they've landed. Suddenly we might be thinking, they've landed on my planet. They're not from my planet. They're aliens, and they came with no visa, that's for sure, you know? So now we have my planet, their planet. Yeah. Be careful, this is my planet here. What do you want? Did you come to sell something? <laughs> is this a cold call? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> We're doing okay without you people. So you know, if there's somebody outside of our planet, then we may think, this is my planet. This is your planet. This is my solar system. You're not from this solar system? Well, this is my solar system. You're not from this galaxy? Well, Milky Way is my way. My way or the Milky Way. And so you may even identify with your own galaxy if somebody's coming from another galaxy. Don't mess with my galaxy. Right? And so the extent of my can really be quite galactic. And then we can't stand people from the Andromeda galaxy. Oh, they're, they're not as good as the Milky Way people. Andromeda and Milky Way, you figure it out, which is nicer? Milky Way. You know, it's obviously a better, better galaxy. And so there's no extent to it, but as soon as we create the division, then there's mine. And so whether it's a galaxy, and now let's get a little bit more realistic, back to my race, people of my religion, people of my state, my city, my family, and then, you know, and then my, 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 there's many ways of carving that up. And then now to my family, well, my spouse, because it's, it's my spouse, right? 
clearly as mine. You look at, you look at my wife, you, you should know that she's my spouse. And then we get to my body, that's clearly, now I'm really on home turf. Because this is where I am. Where my body is, that's where I am. <clears throat> this, is, this is definitely mine. I've got property rights over this one. And then I'm looking inwards and I think, oh, my emotions, boy, they're mine. And my memories, those are absolutely mine. Nobody else's. Absolutely. I have proprietorship over my memories and my desires for sure. And then my thoughts, which I, wish I didn't have as many of them, but <laughs> at, least <they're, laughs> at least they're mine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And so, my, 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 and then there's, and then finally we release all of that, and then we come, ah, good, my awareness. Nobody can take this away from me. My awareness. My substrate. Okay? So it can go right to the nucleus, to the bhavanga, the substrate consciousness. So we can see the my, the, the balloon of my can cover a galaxy or a quadrant of the, you know, of the universe, <clears throat> or it can just retract into like a little snail coming into its shell. It can, well, I'm not so sure about my body because it twitches when I don't want it to twitch and it passes wind when I didn't want to do that at all. But at least my awareness. And so it may just go into the little tiny cubby hole. Uh, well, at least this is mine. This is mine. And the Buddha Dhamma, the Buddha's teachings themselves say, check them out. Check out the galaxy and all the way back, bah, 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 and where we really focus in on, where there's intense clinging, this nyewaralemba, this close grasping. Spouses come and go sometimes. I mean, I was just told today 60% of American marriages wind up being non-marriages, right? But the body for the, for the duration of this life, well, this is, you know, this is my body. And so what the Buddha is getting at, as we attend to the body, we attend to our feelings, we attend to this whole array of mental processes, of mental afflictions, virtues, images, thoughts, memories, fantasies, desires, emotions, all of those, the citta satipatthana, as we closely apply mindfulness to the whole array of mental processes and mental states. Attending to this, just check them out one by one. Carefully, closely apply mindfulness and see for yourself, is there anything in the nature of this object, this phenomenon that you're attending to, that speaks back to you from its own side and says, yes, I'm yours. Yes, you have my brand name on you. Yes, absolutely. And it's just anatta all the way through. And that is skin. People do skin grafts. You can go right... This with, with the miracles, you know, miracles, but the, the wonders of modern medicine. What can't be transplanted at this point? Well, you can't take a brain lock, stock, and barrel. But boy, pretty close up to... I mean, skin and bone marrow and bones and blood and plasma and livers and kidneys and spleens and hearts and lungs. And I'm sure they could, we could swap at least a few neurons. That would be interesting for Enrique and I to start swapping. I give you a hundred of your nice, fresh, young neurons. I give you some of my 60-year-old neurons. And we start, it would be very interesting as a thought experiment. How many neurons could Enrique get before he, he starts being me? <laughs> and before I'm saying, what the hell am I doing in this old body for? And <laughs> I get this cruddy old body. I had a really good one, and I got this one now. Who did this to me? You know. And so certainly some brain brain cells. I mean, you should be able to transplant them. I would think, why not? At least at least the glial cells. Maybe you know, just pop some glial cells over there. They they could they seem more like baggage at this point. So and hair transplants. That's for sure. 
Sure. So what we see here is for all of these, and even if you get to neurons in a large ganglia or a whole cortex, there's nothing in the visual cortex or the frontal cortex or the amygdala, hippocampus, the parietal lobes and so forth. There's nothing in there that's a person. Never has been. Not in them collectively, not in them individually, not in the neurons, not in the molecules or the elementary particles. There's nobody there. None of them are a person. Never have been, never will be. So the notion that a human being is a brain carrying a body in a back, that is so primitive. I just re read recently that um, apparently, what is it, what was it, 4% of the human population have Neanderthal genes. <laughs> this really strikes me as something of a Neanderthal thought. Like, you know, I got my, I got my club over my shoulder <laughs> and I got my body carrying on my back. And I'm a brain, <laughs> you know? It just seems so Neanderthal that, but again, I don't want to be pejorative with respect to any person, but I will be pejorative to that ridiculous thought. I think that's really obnoxious and ridiculous. In any case, the brain is not a person, never has been. It's chemicals and electricity. And that goes for all the other body parts. But now, especially for, I think, frankly, all of you, we've all done subtly in the mind in this natural state. What makes a thought yours? Just because you saw it? I saw it, I got dibs, you know? Why on earth should a thought that just crops up, especially those that just crop up all by themselves, what makes you think they're yours? Do you think that you're Cortez, you land and say, I saw it, therefore it belongs to Spain? You know, is that how things work? That you just see it and then you plant your flagpole? Bahulia was here, this is mine. That was my emotion, because I witnessed it and nobody else did, I saw it first. In which case, I really think the Americans should finally ante up and say, we own the moon. We didn't see it first, but we got there, and you know the color of the flag that we planted on. It was not Russian. It was not Soviet. It was American flag. <laughs> so we own the sucker. <laughs> so it's all non-self. That's it. He didn't say there is no self. It's that all the stuff that we identify with and grasp onto his I, me, and mine, none of it is. That's what he's really saying. So how do we exist? Because we do. There's no question about it. And no school of Buddhism says people don't exist. Human beings don't exist. I don't exist at all. You can't even say that, I don't exist at all, because somebody just said it and it was me. And so, who's the person? I think the most sophisticated view of this, because there are multiple views, and I think they, they vary in terms of degree of subtlety. And that is an evaluative statement for sure, but I'll just go ahead and say it. That's my opinion, but I'm speaking from the Madhyamaka perspective, the middle way perspective. And I believe in this regard is, it is the most subtle philosophically speaking. And that is we are arising from moment to moment. That is, there is no static self. Static, individuated, isolated, independent self. That is clearly refuted. Clearly refuted. Some self that exists by its own inherent nature prior to and independent of anything we say or think. It was already there, just waiting to be labeled and waiting to be conceptually identified. That is exactly the self that is refuted. So it's not only the body isn't me and the thoughts aren't me, but there is no me as some individuated, self-existent identity, me, who exists prior to and independent of any conceptual or ver verbal designation. How do I exist? Okay, we've done a lot on how I don't exist. How does each of us exist? 
we exist in an ongoing flow of arising. We are bhava, we are sippa, we are becoming, we are becoming, becoming, but not independently of conceptual designation or labeling. And so, and we become in a myriad of ways. And this is what makes it light, dynamic, and profoundly and essentially interrelational. And that is right now at this moment, I'm arising in the moment of being, uh, I'm arising in the mode of being a Dharma teacher. I'm not always a Dharma teacher. Conventionally, one might just kind of leave, put that in, in, the, in the ice box. Okay, right now he's sleeping, but overall he's a Dharma teacher. But naturally, when I'm sleeping, I'm not, I'm not teaching Dharma. At that point, that's just kind of a, a dormant category. But right now, I'm arising from moment to moment since what I'm teaching is Dharma, what I'm saying is Dharma, and I'm in the teaching mode, and there are people listening. Right now, arousing, arising in the mode of Dharma teacher. I'll designate myself as such. You may if you wish. At least if one person does, then that's true for that person. Now, when I'm with my grandson, I'm not really a Dharma teacher. I'm a grandpa. When I'm with my spouse, I'm really not that much of a Dharma teacher. She's a very knowledgeable scholar in her own right, as a Buddhist scholar, primarily arising as a spouse. In other cases, I'm arising as a customer. In other cases, I'm arising as an airline passenger. In other cases, I'm arising as a nuisance. Why doesn't this guy go away? <laughs> He's pestering me. <laughs> I'll rise you know, as in multiple ways. So we're arising, arising, and we're always arising relative to context and relative to the way that we and others designate ourselves. But it's always relational, it's always relative. Okay? So that's how we do exist, in an ongoing flow. Now, is, there, is that all there is to us? An emptiness of who are you really as this individual, this man, and so forth, What's your core nature when you throw off all your guises, all your roles? Dharma teacher, grandpa, spouse, customer, and so forth. Throw off all your roles. Tell us who you really are. And you get this gaping vacuity. Like there's just, there is no nuclear self that simply is putting on different garments of grandpa and and teacher and customer and so forth and so on. That's exactly what's empty. Is that all? So now we have... Ultimately, we are empty of of such an inherent nature, and conventionally or relatively, we're arising in a myriad of ways. And bear in mind, as our behavior changes from moment to moment to moment, and our mental states arise from moment to moment to moment, I'm arising as an irate customer, I'm arising as a benevolent philanthropist, I'm arising as a loving grandpa, I'm arising as an impatient customer, and arising and arising and arising, and all of this is relative, and none of it is static, none of it's immutable, and none of it's independent. So that's how I arise, relatively speaking, conventionally speaking, and ultimately, there is no nuclear self. Is that all there is to it? And from the Dzogchen perspective, they say, no, there's a little bit more. From, it's actually not just Dzogchen, but it's also in the Uttara Tantra, Yutlama, in Uttant, and, and in the commentary by Asanga, which I read, and I was thrilled as I read it. This was quite interesting. I've not seen it in many places. I find it very interesting. Very relevant, again, Ilsa. And that is the common, the very common misapprehensions of reality, the active moha, or timuk, the active misapprehensions or delusions that many of us are straining under, in which we're kind of hitting our heads over the head with, you know, with hammers to make us suffer more, is apprehending that which is not by nature attractive, beautiful, and so forth as being. So we superimpose beauty, attractiveness, and so forth on something which is not intrinsically such at all. That's one type of delusion, 
Then we have apprehending, grasping onto that which is by nature impermanent as being durable, stable, enduring, forever. Big mistake. Grasping onto that which is not, that, that which by nature is unsatisfying and grasping onto it as being essentially satisfying. And then finally grasping onto that which is not self as being self. So those are the four common ones. That's just standard flat-out intro, intro Buddhism. But in the commentary to the Uttara Tantra, the teachings which are really centrally all about Buddha nature, there's a statement there, this is in Sutrayana, but very much Mahayana. I have not found this anywhere in the Pali Canon or Theravada, but you also find it in Dzogchen, because Dzogchen is very similar to, overlaps with the teachings on Buddha nature in the Sutrayana. The statement that our essential nature not as some intrinsic individuated self, like Alan Wallace, but our essential nature, our primordial nature, is Buddha nature. Is Buddha nature. Primordial consciousness, pristine awareness, innate mind of clear light. Take away all the layers, all the layers, even all the conventional layers, and what is the ultimate ground state, the ultimate core? Buddha nature, Tathagata goes by many names. And referring to that, said, this is intrinsically, by nature, it is dupa. It is beautiful. It is attractive. It is lovely. It is beauty. It is, what was the second one? It is permanent. It is not subject to change. It's not blah, 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 blah. It is of the very nature of sukha, of joy, of happiness. You didn't get it wrong. And it is who you are. The statement there, asanga. And so the four things that we got wrong for mundane reality, we just got it in the wrong category. Apply those four apprehensions and apply them to your Buddha nature, and actually they're correct. I found that quite interesting. And this corresponds with the, the phrase that I've learned from Gyatrodhamuchi, so representative of the Dzogchen tradition as a whole, and that is the fundamental difference between Buddhas and sentient beings, or Buddhas and deluded sentient beings, is... Buddhas know, know who they are, and sentient beings don't. And when you know yourself as Buddha, then and only then do you really know who you are. Buddha as indivisible from Dharmakaya, indivisible from Buddha nature. So there is a transcendent, a transcendent person. But of course, it's not just a nuclear self individuated, such that there is I and self, duality, reification, and so forth and so on. One, one point that could be interesting for people philosophically inclined and especially with training in Madhyamaka, he said, this, this is skirting with the notion of Atman, which Buddhists are very keen on refuting. This sounds too much like Atman, sounds too much like Hinduism, maybe even sounds too much like Christianity, sounds too much like God. This, if this is who ultimately, beyond the division of ultimate and conventional reality, if this is who we are primordially, this Buddha nature, if this is our true and essential nature. One can then ask, does this exist independently of conceptual designation? Or does it not exist independently conceptual? Does it exist independence upon conceptual designation? If you go for one, and I'm speaking now Dzogchen, straight Dzogchen. And here I speak with confidence, because Dzogchen is clear. 
if you, from the Dzogchen perspective, you say, okay, this, this Buddha within, this Buddha nature, this Tathagatagarbha, the Dharmakaya, the Buddha nature, if you say this exists only independence upon conceptual designation, this is completely gibberish because this transcends utterly, absolutely, and primordially all conceptual elaborations. It transcends them, so it can't possibly come into existence independence upon conceptual designation when it absolutely and primordially transcends. Absolutely free of all elaborations of conceptualization. If that's the case, there's no way it can be dependent upon conceptual designation. That really doesn't make any sense at all. Then the person, a philosopher working out of the Sutriana, can say, then I've got you. Then you've gone right back to the root delusion of grasping onto the inherent nature of yourself because you're saying it exists independently of conceptual designation. And the Dzogchen says, no, we're not saying that either. We're not saying that this Buddha nature does exist, does exist independence upon conceptual designation, we refute. We do not say the Buddha nature exists independently of conceptual designation, we refute. Why? Because Buddha nature is beyond all conceptual elaboration and that includes explicitly, this is not an opinion, it excludes explicitly this Buddha nature, this Rikpa, pristine awareness, transcends the very conceptual elaborations of existence and non-existence, and therefore to say it exists versus not exist is already an error. It transcends utterly all conceptual elaborations. So all this relaxing, says Ilsa, seems to weaken the sense of identity. Well, I should certainly hope so. Because <laughs> that's what shamatha is all about. Shamatha is, shamatha is the one that comes in and if we think of the fortress of ignorance and delusion, and I think a number of you are finding it does have something of a fortress-like quality to it, right? If we think of ignorance and delusion, the core, the core mental afflictions of ignorance and delusion, if we think of that as a fortress surrounded by the ramparts of craving and hostility, then the shamatha is coming in and directly bringing the battering ram of shamatha to break down, break down the walls of craving, break down the walls of all kinds of craving in the desire realm, especially. As the Buddha said in the Prajnaparamita Sutra, as you do, and he was referring to mindfulness of breathing. He says, doing so, you, by abiding in mindfulness and introspection, you release your attachment, your craving for the world. You're free of that and free of disappointment. You're free of the avarice, the craving, the attachment for things in the world, and therefore you are free of disappointment. That which you don't crave for in the first place, you don't get disappointed when you don't get it or you lose it. The more we crave something, the more anxious we will be about not getting it. Once we've gotten, gotten it, the more anxious we'll be about losing it. And if we don't get it or we lose it, we'll be all the more disappointed. And so you live without craving, without disappointment, with respect to the world. So shamatha is breaking down the outer, the outer ramparts, protecting the inner sanctum of delusion and ignorance, breaking down the walls of attachment and craving, breaking those down, of course, then the walls of hostility and aggression, 
Why are you going to be hostile and aggressive? If you didn't have attachment in the first place, what are you going to be angry about? Right? And so those start to crumble. And you recall that it is bliss. It's pliti or gawa. Bliss as one of the five jhana factors that directly antidotes malice, ill will. Just flat out samadhi, flat out shamatha, antidotes ill will. So it breaks down, and of course, which one was it? It was the samadhi itself, the single-pointedness of mind, one of the five jhana factors, it is that single-pointedness of mind, the samadhi, that breaks down what obscuration? Evaporates, tears through what, what obscuration? Craving for the bounties of the desire realm. Dupe yunden la chapa. Dupe yunden la chapa. Dupe kam ki yunden la chapa. It is the craving, the craving for the bounties of the desire realm. That's what, when you break the term apart. It's not just sensual craving. It's fame. It's power. It's all the stuff we want in the world. Because some people may be much more fixated on fame than they are about just stuff. And they might impoverish themselves to get fame because that's where they, they start to really salivate. And so just that single point, it's not intuitively obvious, but it turns out to be experientially true that as a mind gets really single-pointed, that just fades out. Like an old movie you don't want to watch anymore. Just fades out. Seen it, been there, done that, not interesting anymore. Boom. You break down the outer ramparts of the craving, break down the outer ramparts of the hostility, of anger and so forth. That's what shamatha is for. It makes ignorance and delusion vulnerable. As long as they're being protected by thick walls of craving and hostility, the chances of a pasana penetrating through those walls and killing the king, you know, knocking out the center of the castle, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Not likely. You remember the analogy of shamatha being like the, the bodyguard and vipassana being like the, the ambassador. Send out the ambassador out to those bandits on your, on your borderlands without a bodyguard. See how long he survives. Send out your vipassana with no muscle of shamatha behind it. See how long, see who wins, your mental afflictions or vipassana. Good luck with that. Not a strategy that's worked in the past, no reason to think it should work in the present. And people who practice it for 40 years and then find, oh, I still have mental afflictions. Why were you surprised? Why were you surprised? And now do you want to redefine enlightenment? Is oh, I've just adjusted my relationship with the mental afflictions. They don't bother me anymore. And therefore, I'm an arhat. Ho-ho, that was an easy way out. So, all of this is this sense of relaxing seems to weaken the sense of identity. Yes, relaxing relaxes also the tension of craving. Relaxing releases the tension of aversion, anger, hostility. Relaxation releases the thought, I am. As we release thoughts after thought after thought, release the rumination which reinforces and reinforces like a non-lucid dream, reinforces the sense, I am, I really am, I'm in charge here. The relaxation is releasing the thoughts, releasing them thoughts in mindfulness of breathing. It's disengaging from grasping onto the thoughts and settling the mind. It's releasing the thoughts and settling right in awareness itself in the shamatha without a sign. The sense of identity starts to be more like a mirage rather than a stone building. More like a, a mirage of a stone building. It looks like it's there, but it shimmers 
and there's something a bit fishy about a stone building that shimmers. Like, will you really protect me from the cold? A shimmering stone building? And so if you can get used to that, this shimmering sense of self that looks like it may evaporate, and not be afraid of that for which there is no danger. Because the disillusion, the shimmering, the melting away, the evaporation of this reified sense, I am, is not dangerous, it's the opposite of danger, it's release. But it's unfamiliar, and we tend to be afraid of the unknown. So relax around it, keep on coming back to it. Come back to that fear. Don't jump into it, don't terrify yourself. Keep on coming back to it. Come back to it, first of all, from cultivating love and kindness for yourself, and then venture into that fear of the loss of self. Get used to it, welcome it, like a warm cloak on a cold day. That's my answer.